0: Good morning, welcome. Uh, my name is Stephen, as Randy said, I'm the lead pastor at City on a Hill in Forest Hills. And just a little bit about me. Um, yes, I am the chaplain for the Red Sox. I usually lead with that in my neighborhood because when I tell people I'm a pastor, it's weird. They're like, well, that's, that's odd. But if I say I do something with the Red Sox, like, oh, that sounds awesome. And then I can say anything else. I could be like, "You know, I'm not gonna tell you what else, but I could say anything else and they would be cool with it. Um, but uh, I'm, a, I'm married, been married for uh, over 17 years. I have four daughters. Um, My uh, oldest is about to turn 16, so you know how to pray. Uh, We're about to start driving soon. Um, Pray for my insurance. uh, Pray for that. I have a 14-year-old. A twelve-year-old and a ten-year-old, so we are in the middle of teenage angst all the time, and so. Uh, but it is a blessed joy to be their dad. It's a blessing to be the pastor of City on the Hill Forest Hills, and so um, often, as I've said many times, when I've come here to preach before, um, you are my other favorite City on the Hill congregation. Um, but uh, an old tradition uh, when one church, a sister church, would go to another is they would bring greetings. Uh, from their church. We bring greetings to you. We're thankful for you uh, that you're here in this part of Boston, uh, spreading the hope and the love of Jesus. And just know the brothers and sisters on the south part of the city who love you and who are praying for you every week. So thank you uh, for for, uh, for having me this morning. As it was mentioned, Aaron is on sabbatical. Uh, as a church network, we believe in sabbatical, proactive sabbatical, uh, not when you burn out, but uh, proactively to make sure that our pastors are healthy and are thriving and able to lead you and do ministry. So I know you guys. Love love Pastor Aaron very well, and so thank you guys for loving him well enough to let him go on this sabbatical. So I had the joy of teaching from God's Word with you this morning. And this morning, we're going to be back in the book of Genesis. Now, you may notice some different our, for our graphic. Um, Genesis is really kind of a, a story in two parts. And so the first part is creation and the second part is really God's people. And so there's a little bit different graphic. The first looked a little primordial. It looked like kind of creation coming into being. This is this picture of, of God's creation. And, and most of the time as a church, you may notice that we go through book of the Bible from one end of the book to the other. And we do that for several reasons. One is that when you look at a text from the beginning to the end, you tend to see some things you wouldn't see otherwise. Um, There are things you'd run across and go, huh, that's interesting, and you dig in a little bit. And we're going to be seeing that over the next several months as we look at the back part of Genesis. Um, We're going to see some things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Um, Also, we don't skip over hard things. Um, Our tendency as people, if if we don't go through a book of the Bible from one end to the other, we all have our little pet topics we like to talk about. So it'd be easy for us to jump into one particular thing and ignore the hard stuff. But we've made a commitment as churches, we don't skip hard things. We go through them because we believe this is God's Word and that every word in the Scriptures is profitable to teach us, to correct us, and guide us into being the people that God wants us to be but also there are different types of genres. In the Bible, you have books that are just simply teaching like Paul's letters. They're pretty easy. It's like, you know, you do this and you don't do this. It's, it's pretty easy to understand. Um, I could get up here and just give you the Psalms and the Proverbs and give you some kind of a moral for today. But as we enter into a book like Genesis, much like the gospel stories, this is a story and we can find ourselves in the narrative and, and step into that and see what God has for us. And so, as I mentioned, Genesis is like a story into parts. The first part of Genesis, Genesis 1 through chapter 11, is really how God created a whole world for people. God created the world for us, but ultimately he created the world in Genesis chapter one for his glory. And so Genesis chapter one, God created the world. He created a spoken into being, which means that God gives purpose and meaning and value and beauty to the world that we live in. God created the world. And then at the end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two, we see how God uh, brought people into the world. He brought people to inhabit and enjoy his world. As it was said, made in his image, meaning that we reflect his glory, we reflect, reflect His character, we reflect His purpose in the world as men and women created equally in the image of God that God made a covenant with people that if we honor and obey Him and we follow Him and we trust Him, we worship Him, He will bless us and the world will flourish. Well, Genesis 3 comes along and the entire thing gets wrecked. I don't know if you've read that. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve come, they sin, thanks a lot. And the world completely is messed up from that point forward. And so Genesis 4 through chapter 11 is really how that plays out, the aftermath of the fall. And we see evil and oppression and injustice beginning to happen over and over again. And if we're honest, we see this throughout the rest of the Bible and also in our lives and in the world we live in. We see the aftermath of the fall. In uh, Genesis chapter 6, things had gotten so bad that God said, because of the exceptional evil in the world, I'm going to flood the entire world. We're going to start over and we're going to eradicate people. Very happy, happy message. But the last sermon we looked at through Genesis chapter uh, in Genesis chapter eleven was the Tower of Babel. Now, if you know anything about the Tower of Babel, um, it was not this picture of human cooperation. It was actually a picture of oppression. If uh, part of the the of the, uh, the commandment that God gave the world was that we would be fruitful and multiply, and that the natural progression of the world would have been greater ethnic diversity and also greater linguistic diversity would have occurred, but they were all gathering together in an oppressive systemic manner. And what's really being shown to us through the first 11 chapters of Genesis is is these people were not going to get any better. There is no hope for them. They're not going to govern their way out of this. They're not going to educate their way out of this. They're not going to cooperate their way out of this. There is no hope. So the entire story of creation, the entire story of people is narrowing down to this one family, in particular, this one man named Abram. And so if you look at Genesis 11, verses 10 through 26, we see the story of Abraham's family, his genealogy, connecting Noah's son Shem, marching all the way through to Terah, Abram's father. And so we see it narrowing down to Abram, who will later on be called Abraham, and his family. And so the question is, is why does this story about a man born 4,000 years ago matter for us? Why does that matter? Well, if you were on the train this morning coming into church, or if you were in your car driving here or walking in the neighborhood, and you walked by a synagogue, even the synagogue that we're in this morning, you walk by a mosque, you walk by any number of churches, all of those traditions would trace their history back to Abram. They would trace their their history and their religion would say that Abram or Abraham was the father of their tradition. And so nearly 5 billion people on the planet would trace their heritage back to Abraham. And and it's a story of faith. It's a story of, of God working through this family. But when we say story, don't think of it like a myth. When I say story, I don't mean fiction. When my kids were little, I would do this thing where every, every night I would make up a story. I just, whatever was on my mind in that moment, I would make up a story to pass the time as they're going to bed. And it'd be about dragonflies or caterpillars or, or race cars or whatever. And I would make up that story and it would always be their names. I'd be like, you know, there were four little caterpillars. And their names were Lily and Addie and Karis and Emily, And they're like, oh, that's us. And I'm like, that's the point. And so, and so I would tell them this story and we, it would always go like this. There'd be some sort of problem and there'd have to be teamwork and they come together and then everybody was happy in the end. That's often how we treat books like Genesis. We imagine them as a story that we kind of insert our name into and that there's a conflict and there's a moral at the end of the day that we get to glean for our lives. But yet, we don't think about whether this is actually history, that these are real human events that have lasting impact upon us And what the Bible does that's different than any other worldview or any other religion is it takes its claims and it drops them right in the middle of human history. It takes its claims and puts them on display to be tested. These things either happened or they didn't. We do not have blind faith. We have faith in facts, faith in things that actually happen. And the reason we know this is because why? God became a man. God took on flesh. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again. And there is ample evidence both through the scriptures and outside of the scriptures in history to show that Jesus existed. And in the same way, we know that Abraham, the father of our faith, existed. And this matters because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises made to Abraham. And it matters because in a world full of evil, in a world full of oppression, a world full of injustice, God made a way. He promised Abram, Abraham, he, he promised that he'd give him a family. He promised that he would make him into a nation that would bless all people. So let's take a moment this morning and let's look at what Abraham's family is like and the hope that it would bring. But also we're gonna see something about all families this morning. And the first thing we see is that family is a mess. Can I get an amen? Amen. How many of you went home to be with your family over the holidays? Okay. Probably at varying degrees of enjoyment. Some of you probably got the question: like, well, have you met anybody nice at college? If you're young, you know, when are you gonna have children? When are you gonna get married? Like all you get all of these questions for families. Some of them not very enjoyable, some very enjoyable. Some of your families are probably pretty messed up and pretty broken. Uh, There's this movie called Four Christmases uh, where Vince Vaughn and Reese Witherspoon, they're they're married and they hate Christmas. They're trying to get away for the holidays. They get caught on camera and they end up having to go to four Christmases because both their families are divorced. And Vince Vaughn has this family where like everybody's macho and redneck and they're like putting him in a headlock on the floor. I pray that wasn't your Christmas. But sometimes our families are an absolute mess. And in the same way, Abram's family was a mess. If you look at them, you look at this genealogy, you look at the end of chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, they seem like a pretty normal family. But once we start peeling back some of the chapters to come, you're gonna realize they are a hot Jerry Springer mess. You're gonna see some things in Scripture that these are not things you need to do, these are just things that happen to people. We often say that there are things in the Bible that are prescribed that you should do and things that are described that you shouldn't do that just show the things that were broken. We're going to see a lot of described stuff here in the next coming month, a couple of months. His family was a mess, but some of the brokenness wasn't things that they did. It was just part of living in a fallen world. If you look at verse 27, it says, now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah uh, Terah fathered Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. And so Abraham was likely the youngest. He was listed first because of his importance to the story. But the family knew heartache, because if you look at verse 28, it says, Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah. Now that should probably, that should stop you in your tracks. I read this this week and it hit me with a different kind of weight because Terah had to experience watching his likely oldest son die right in front of him. In his presence, in the land of his kindred, in in Ur of the Chaldeans. This struck me because no parent should ever have to bury their child. That's a unique type of pain and suffering and brokenness. It's easy for us to skip over the humanness of the text sometimes when we look at this and go, wait a minute, like I can't imagine what it'd be like to lose a child. When my father passed away several years ago, someone gave me a book by a man named H. Norman Wright called Recovering from Losses in Life. And one of the things he says in that book is that the phrase time heals all wounds is a lie. It's a lie because time doesn't heal wounds. It just teaches you how to limp with them. This is probably something that Terah took to his grave. We see in verse 30, not just this, but Sarai was barren. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. She knew the heartache of infertility. At this point, Sarai probably would have been about 65 years old, beyond the age of the ability to have children. If you or anyone you've known has experienced infertility, you know that it is a really painful and often lonely journey. And so for those of you who are married and are experiencing that, I would encourage you with this, you're not alone in that. One of the things I've found in all the churches I've ever pastored is every person who's experiencing infertility feels like they're the only one, but oftentimes there are multiple in our congregation. I'd encourage you to talk and share your struggles because you'll probably find somebody else who's experiencing the same thing. Not just that, but later on, Terah dies. Verse 32, the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran they lost the patriarch of their family. In the ancient world, everything ran through the father, all the blessings, all all the protection, all the comfort, all the security. And if you've ever lost a parent, it is an indescribable type of loss. I remember after my dad passed away, I, I felt certain things I'd never felt before. I was struggling with the idea of aspects of our relationship that never were, that I longed for and now realize never would be. All of us carry family brokenness. Now, you may have had a great family, but I know you didn't have perfect parents. Some of you may have had really terrible parents or a terrible upbringing. And so much of, of what we learn from our families is caught versus being taught. And you'll see this in Abram's kids. Abram's kids repeat some of the ex- exact same mistakes that he makes. And so you can't help the house that you were brought up in. Your your family of origin shapes you, and there's a certain mess and brokenness that we can carry into our relationships. Those things aren't your fault. However, some brokenness is self-initiated. Some things we do is not because of what happened to us, it's because we made a really dumb decision. And we see this over and over and over in Abram's family. He makes some really stupid decisions. He was so self-reliant at times. He made his own plans. When you get to Genesis 15 through 17, it's going to be a, a, a whole hot mess. And what happens is when you rely on your own efforts, you create confusion and compromise. When you, when you rely on yourself, instead of the wisdom that God gives, it creates confusion and it causes us to compromise. Now we notice that the location that they're coming from is in the land of Ur, which would have been like Southeast Iraq, modern day. And we see that they had settled there. Now the context of that, if you look at Genesis chapter 11, they've all gathered together at Babel. They were scattered because of their, their disobedience. And the theme in the book of Genesis is anytime you see someone moving to the east, they're moving away from the presence of God. So, so they're moving away from the Lord. They're, they're wandering. They're, they're relying on their own plans moving away from him, but we also see them beginning here to to sort of wander back. They're wandering toward Haran, which would have been to the northwest. It kind of wasn't really toward Canaan. It was in the general direction, but they got detoured. And we don't know the reasons of why they did so. Uh, It could have been that Terah got sick and they got stuck there. It could be that, you know, that they just lost focus. But one thing we do know from Joshua chapter 24 is that Abram's family had begun to worship other gods. Joshua said to all the people, chapter uh, chapter 24, verse 2, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, that would have been in the land of Ur. Terah, the father of Abram and of Nahor, they served other gods. We see the mess of this family as threats to the promises that God had given them. We see these, these threats that, that, to, to the to the promise that God would make a nation out of them and make a people and make his name great and give them a land. And these threats seem to be things like barrenness and and that other people occupied the land. Chapter 12, verse 6, the Canaanites were there. You know, if you want an apartment in Boston, you can't just knock on the door and say, I need you to move out. Like, there's a process and a lease and a deposit. Something's got to change there. It seems like a barrier. Israel's continued unfaithfulness. So how, how do we know that God is going to work through this family? Is that while we fail, God remains the same. He never changes. He never fails. He overcomes all the threats and the barriers that we see to the promises he provides. And we can see, all of us can see ourselves in this family. This, we've, some of us have experienced loss or heartache this year. Maybe there's familial brokenness that's been generations of, of brokenness. There are longings that just never seem to be fulfilled. Maybe just personally, there's a, a pattern or a sin that you just can't seem to lay down. And all of these things, things seem to be threats to the promises that come to us through Christ. And what we start doing is we start questioning those promises. We ask questions like, well, if I keep doing this, am I really a Christian? If this keeps happening, am I really loved by God? if this keeps happening, God, are you really for me? And so when you hear that, what are the threats that you see to the promises that God has given you through Jesus? Maybe it's self-inflicted. We all at times move toward the east. We move away from God. All of us at times rely upon ourselves. There's an old hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You just feel that tug eastward. You feel that tug pulling you away from God. And in Boston, our solution, when we feel lost, when we feel rudderless, when we feel like we don't know what to do is we will make a five-step plan and we will come up with something to get us where we want to go. And there's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with using wisdom. There's nothing wrong with using the intellect that God has given you. But first, God invites us to draw close to him to help us understand how we're to live. Proverbs 4, verses 10 through 13 say, Hear my son and accept my words. That the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. This, This takes submitting ourselves and submitting our plans to God. And much like Abram, God has called you to submit your life to him. And what this means is that. Your decisions about what you do and where you live and how you spend your time or your money can't just be about comfort. They can't just be about ease. They can't just be about fitting into your five-year plan for your life or where you want to go to grad school or what you want to do with your life. We have to first ask the question, what pleases God? What gives Him glory? And what helps other people experience that glory more and more? Your family history might be a mess. Some of it might be self-inflicted, but it doesn't mean that God can't work in and through you. In fact, the second idea we see is that family is a means of blessing. As messed up as Abraham's family was, God's intention was to bless him and the entire world through this family. We see in chapter 12, verses one and two, we see the content of this blessing. End of of verse one, that he was gonna give him a land that he would show him. This was the promised land of Canaan. If you read the Old Testament, you see this story of them going and he promises this land. They get detoured in Egypt uh, and then God leads this nation to the promised land. And they were going to have this land as a place that would be full of justice and mercy and love and kindness. And it would be a place that the entire world could be blessed from. We also see that God was in chapter 12, verse 2, that he was going to make of him a great nation. Not just one little family, but an entire group of people got a giant house and you need to get a bunch of roommates. Like everybody's coming in. And then the end of chapter 12, verse 2, we see he was going to make him famous. He was going to give him a name. And as you look throughout the rest of Genesis, we see increasingly Abraham gets greater honor and fame and glory among other people. He was going to be blessed beyond his imagination, but it required Abram to give up everything he'd known and trusted to receive it. So in order for Abraham or Abram to receive the content of the blessing, he had to accept the radical call of the blessing. We see the calling of Abraham required a radical giving up of himself. And in chapter 12 verse one, he, God says, "Go from your country. I want you to leave what's comfortable. I want you to leave what's familiar." So he leaves Ur and he receives this, this calling in Ur. He goes to Haran and goes to a place that says that the land I will show you. It was completely unknown to him. I've, I've done this one time in my life. I was living in Colorado. We had to make a quick move to Arizona. No, I wasn't running from the law. It was just we had to make a quick move as ministry, you know, how those things go. Um, And so we had to make a quick move and we needed a place to stay. I, I couldn't afford to go down and look at an apartment. And so I had a friend living there and I said, Would you please go look at this place and see if it's somewhere we can live? We have a newborn. And, you know, I'm just trusting my friend who actually happened to be my youth pastor. And I was really afraid I was going to have like shag carpet and like it was going to be purple and there's going to be psychedelic stuff on the walls. I really felt that was going to be, I had to trust him that he wasn't going to do that to me. In the same way, Abram is having to trust that what God is calling him into, what is unfamiliar will be for his good. He called him from kindred and his father's house. He had to leave the the comforts of home to experience the blessing that God had promised. Some of you, when you went home for the holidays, you walked into your house, especially if if you have a home that's healthy and functioning well, it's comfortable. You walk in and there's just a sense when you walk in your house. There's something about it that just feels comfortable. James K. Smith says there's a hum sometimes in in a healthy home. Maybe it's your favorite meal or whatever comfort that might be. When I was in college, when I would go home, it was the smell of the pillowcase. There's something about what my mom washed our clothing in was comforting to me. My wife, when we go home and see her family, we knew that the refrigerator was going to be stocked full of food. And when we were a young, broke, married couple, I was like, they have string cheese. Like, we're going we're gonna to eat good this week. And so there was something comforting about that. There's something comforting about your family's home. And what God is calling them to do is leave that, not not turn their back on their family. We'll see later on, they're still very connected, but this is an issue of a priority and dependency. God is realigning their priorities and causing them to be dependent upon him. Because what did Jesus say the cost of being a disciple was? You must what? Hate your father, your mother, your brother, and your sister. Now, was Jesus saying you literally hate them? No but you love me first. God is saying to Abraham, I want you to literally leave because I want you to show me that you love me more than anything. And in order to do this, you're going to have to give up control. And this giving up of control leads to God's blessing because the Lord makes a childless couple in a strange place into a great nation that would bless all people. And So for you, what if Boston is the place of blessing that God has for you? Some of you, it's that time of year, you're getting homesick. You feel it in your bones. If I just want mom's pasta or whatever it might be. You might be far from home. It might be hard. It might feel expensive. It might just be colder than you're used to. But what if digging in and giving yourself to the city and, and digging into this church is how God intends to grow you in this next season, how He intends to grow you into the person He wants you to be, that you actually find a family through the church that ends up being a blessing not just to you, but to even to your own biological family. This also means that you don't have to have a great biological family that you can also be a part of one called the church. And this has an impact on every relationship in your life. What did Jesus promise? He said he would come and make all things new. And this means he longs for flourishing and healing in places like your family so that maybe God can repair the relationship with your parents. that has been a struggle. Or that you could love your spouse or your kids in the way that Christ loves the church and the way that God treats us as a father, that your family could begin to resemble grace and forgiveness and mercy. And it means that anybody can get in on this blessing. Submitting ourselves to God in his call changes us. Tim Keller says that the call of God is so powerful. Not only do you have to have it or your life is a dead end. He says, I don't care how nice a person you are, but it also transforms you no matter how bad a person you are. The last idea is this, lastly, family is meant to be a blessing to others. God did not want to just bless Abram and right there in Ur or in Haran so he could raise a little, some nice little idol worshippers who were just good citizens. That's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to create a people who would bless all people. And he says this at the end of chapter 12, verse 2, he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in fact, the blessing that God had put upon Abraham was tied to others' fortunes. Chapter 12, verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What did that blessing look like? What were they called to do? If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, very beginning of Genesis, what did God tell Adam and Eve to do? He said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. What did he tell to Noah? After the flood, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to make the world a place of justice and mercy and not evil. I want you through your family to be this symbol and this example of the love and the grace and the mercy of God. And I'm going to say this, and and look, I'm not anti-family as I say this. I think one of the worst things to happen to the church is the Western idea that a family is just, just a mom, a dad, 2.3 kids and a dog. This picture of the family as this closed impenetrable circle that nobody else can get into. I think that is one of the absolute worst things to happen to the church because in the ancient world, the family was communal. It was mom and dad and grandparents and aunts and uncles, and not just that, lots of other people that got brought into the family too. And if you look at the Old Testament, this was the type of family that Abram became. It says later on that they added all sorts of people to their family. Chapter 12, verses four through nine, we see that Abram obeyed God's call and he went forward, he left the land, he praised God, he worshiped him, he built an altar. He was setting out to do this, to, to be a light to the nations, This is what he told Israel later in the book of Isaiah, to be a people holy and set apart, to be, to, to be loving and kind and live their lives for the flourishing of others. And when you see God's people at their best in the Old Testament, they do this. And when you see God's people at their best, they're always bringing other people in. What happened to Naomi when she lost her husband and she was experiencing bitterness to the point that she renamed herself Mara or bitterness? She was brought into a family. Those on the outside, like Ruth, were brought in. Those who were notorious, like Rahab, found a family. But most of the time, they don't live up to the vision of being a blessing. Much like us, we tend to give ourselves to selfish agendas. I'm just too busy or I'm too tired. I'm, I got a lot going on. They gave themselves to idol worship. You know, I've got to make a certain grade in this class, or I've got to make this certain program. I've got to get this promotion. I've got to, got to be successful. I've got to find comfort. Or they're just so focused on themselves. What about my time? What about what I want? But God intended for a family to be a blessing to the whole world, and yet they didn't live up to that calling. So how does God bring this blessing ultimately into the world? How does God bless all people through Abraham and his broken family? We know that God never fails at his promises. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, who does it say Jesus is the son of? Jesus, the son of Abraham. God sustained and used this family through the generations to bring the Savior into the world. And much like Abraham, we see Jesus left his home. Jesus left the side of the father He came into our world to make us his family through his work on the cross. He did so for the exaltation of his name through his life, death, and resurrection. So how do we become a blessed people? How do we respond to Abraham and this calling? The first is we have to have faith like Abraham. Abraham is an example of faith. And he shows us the nature of faith. The faith is not just simply believing, but faith is trust that leads to obedience. John Piper says of this, he says, Faith in God's promises, or today we would say faith in Christ, who is the confirmation of God's promises, is the way to become a child of Abraham. Obedience is the evidence that faith is genuine. We don't want to have faith that just says we believe, but faith that actually places our trust in Christ. When you think about the fact that your sins have been forgiven, do do you lean on that? Do Do you trust in that? Or do you still oftentimes try to outwork your guilt? Or are you placing that all at the feet of Jesus? So we have to have faith like Abraham. Secondly, we have to consider what you need to leave behind for the joy ahead of you. What are the things that you continue to cling to? The things you continue to trust in that God is asking you to lay down and reprioritize for the greater blessing to be found in him. And then lastly, seek to be a blessing as part of a greater family. You have a joy in being a part of this church. I often talk to people in our, in our church about how finding a good local church is really hard and it doesn't matter where you go. And so when you're thinking about your decisions that's coming up here, maybe some of you are wondering, do I stay in Boston? Do I go somewhere else? Make this the priority. Don't make it a job and say like, where's the people of God that God wants me to be a part of? Maybe he's calling you to take a job in another city. What's the church you're gonna be a part of when you go there? But but seek to be a, a part of a greater family and see the blessing that God has for you through the local church. Let's pray.